I'm Beth Hughes and I'm your podcast host. Flourish for Life and Agile Life Sciences are bringing you a range of conversations. This week, we're focused on female health, specifically menopause, and asking the question, could we diagnose it better? Hi, my name's Bethan Hughes, your podcast host for today, and honoured to share a conversation with Dr. Jam Rogers and Dr. Helen Keeney. Before we get started, I think it's important if the listeners learn a little bit more about you. So, um, Helen, over to you first, if you could just uh, introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Helen Keeney. I'm a, an NHS GP and co-founder of Flourish for Life. It's a private clinic for lifestyle medicine where we offer individual uh, appointments and also an offering for workplace. And it's been a perfect opportunity to combine my passion of 18 years of women's health, which I've done a lot of in during my NHS career, and um, allow my allow me time really to spend time with women to actually really help them through um, improving lifestyle and also improving their hormonal health. Um, done a little bit of a uh, few conversations outside um, the individuals in different settings. So one of them was in within our triathlon. Um, team talking to the women around menopause and um, raising awareness around lifestyle medicine and during that I met Jan so that's where we met it, Jan so <laughs> I'll let you is. introduce yourself before we have that story. Okay yeah thanks guys um, Jan Rogers so I'm the uh, joint CEO of um, Agile Life Sciences and uh, we are developing a, uh, a menopause test um, which we'll go into a little bit later. Um, my background, so I'm a scientist through and through, um, PhD scientist many, many years ago. Um, subsequently been working for both large and small companies, uh, developing medical devices and more laterally uh, in vitro diagnostics. Um, our team is very much focused on life sciences. We're very passionate about what we do. Um, and we also uh, really wanted to sort of help, I think, um, find an unmet need, um, which Helen, I think that's again sort of where, where we sort of first met. So um, I was on a podcast where Helen was uh, chatting about menopause and the challenges um, and challenges particularly around, I think, sort of is there a test for, uh, for menopause? Um, and the answer is no. <laughs> um, so it sort of got us thinking really. And I think, uh, again, Helen introduced us to the uh, vaginal microbiome, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about later on. Um, and that's sort of uh, how we've sort of developed over the past sort of uh, 18 months, really, uh, researching in this space. Um, yeah, so my background, I'm a scientist, uh, not a clinician. <laughs> um, so really sort of taking the uh, the sort of the uh, listening to, I guess, the clinicians, the challenges that they have, and just seeing if if our expertise can help in that area and help in that space uh, with tests, diagnostic tests, monitoring tools and things like that. So that's my background. Brilliant. Thanks both. So I think before we get into to things, we've already just heard um, a couple of kind of key phrases, words, things that may or may not be familiar to people. So I think it's good if we just have a little... Um, moment to, to perhaps cover off some of the key terms and um, some of the things that we'll talk about today, just so that we're all on the same page. So Helen, I'm going to throw this one at you, if that's okay. So could you just give us perhaps a bit of an overview of, we hear pre-menopause, we hear perimenopause, we hear post-menopause. So just so that we're all kind of clear, could you perhaps define those in terms of both from a clinical um, perspective, but also what that means to somebody? Yeah, I think it's important to think about a woman's journey, you know, through her hormonal life. So every um, woman obviously has their own cycle um, and that's in, you know, obviously following puberty and that's the premenopausal time. So they'll continue their cycle. And for women, that can be a regular or irregular periods throughout their lives. Um, and as they reach 
a certain so that's really a reflection on your ovarian reserve so your ovaries are producing eggs and you're getting this up and down relatively stable um you know sort of uh, hormonal fluctuation and then as you get um as those eggs start uh, reducing and depleting in number you get this fluctuating of hormones and during the perimenopause so the time leading up to when your um, periods stop you can have this fluctuating of estrogen and progesterone and certainly estrogen you know just sort of reducing and it can actually have quite a, it can be quite a reasonable length of time so it can be up to seven to ten years up to the menopause now the menopause itself is actually defined as a year and a day following your your, your last period and like for a lot of women obviously that time before can be quite a tricky time and can be quite a transition and I think it's probably quite important to as a lot of us as women know that we can have quite a lot of symptoms related to our hormones and for some women it can be quite sort of psychological symptoms and physical symptoms and so women can experience a lot of different symptoms during that time. Brilliant thank you Um, and then I suppose as a follow-up to that as a practicing clinician what are perhaps the biggest challenges that you're faced with um, when women come to see you and I think from the women that I've spoken to there's quite a range some people are very aware about what's going on and that they perhaps are starting to think that they, they're entering that um, perimenopausal phase but then also for many they're just perhaps hit with lots of the symptoms but perhaps don't have the physical marker of um, the change in periods, perhaps if they're on a, a coil device or something like that. So so what are some of the biggest challenges when, when people come to see you? I mean, I think it's a combination, isn't it? So I think you're right. There's a lot of women who are very self-aware. So they've, and obviously, fortunately, over the last sort of five, six years, there's been greater awareness, hasn't there? And there's been a lot of campaigns for that, which has been brilliant. But yeah, so I think like back to what we described about the psychological and the physical symptoms they're so individual depending on for those women so it's whether women recognize it themselves and it's also that lots can be happening at that time of life so are women you know blaming what's going on in life is it busy times is it work is it relationships but also beyond that are there other diagnoses that are going on because obviously um, a lot of symptoms can you know fatigue um, hot flushes they can be a marker of other other pathology as well as um, you know perimenopause menopause symptoms so and for a lot of women also suffering with long-term conditions, that can also be another factor. So trying to work out the diagnosis of a perimenopause throughout that can be hard. And, you know, for a lot of women, they do see a change in their periods. They can see some, and that can be a marker for a clinician who maybe isn't quite as a sort of aware of menopause, um, you, know, it, you know, especially if, you know, they haven't thought about that as part of their, you know, differential diagnosis but actually if you put it all together it's quite hard it is quite hard and so you know in a lot of the current guidance it's all on clinical symptoms but if you haven't recognized it yourself that makes it really really difficult yeah absolutely and is there a certain age that that this all happens at or is it I mean, the average age for menopause is 51, you know, in this country. But actually, you know, as we described, perimenopause can be seven to 10 years up to that, you know, that time. Um, You know, one in a thousand women under the age of 30, one in uh, in a hundred under the age of 40. You know, this is something that can be really, really variable for every individual. And um, for some women, one in four women might not have any symptoms whatsoever two out of four might have moderate one in four could be quite significantly impacted and I think it's um has the woman herself recognized it has the clinician put you know put it together and 
going back to what I described at the beginning, unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of time as clinicians, certainly in NHS, to be able to have that full conversation about um, the symptoms, the impact. And, you know, both women and clinicians can jump to the conclusion that it's something else and go down an avenue. And I know certainly a lot of women do end up in secondary care for investigations around palpitations, headaches and everything, because actually a lot of the symptoms are quite, quite variable. Brilliant. Thank you. And so, Jan, so how have you ended up in, in this space and, and working in menopause? Oh, jolly good question. <laughs> no, so um, I think, as we mentioned earlier, really, um, we um, just the passion really around the life sciences, um, but also I think meeting that unmet need and, you know, clearly m menopause and menopause diagnostics and testing um, was becoming apparent that there was an unmet need, I think. And, you know, both from a, from, I mean, again, you know, from my point of view, both from a clinician's point of view to help them with that, um, aid that diagnosis, but also I think from the individual's point of view to just try and understand, am I perimenopausal? Because like you say, it's, it is quite a challenge. Um, so I, you know, our expertise is very much life sciences. Um, we, we were all very passionate about health and lifestyle and, you know, the gut microbiome was something that we sort of, um, as individuals, we've all looked after and looked into. Um, and, you know, I think uh, ordinarily when we were looking for an opportunity, I think we'd have potentially um, gone down the gut microbiome, but it's just a very challenging environment, um, which is why I think the conversation with Helen around vaginal microbiomes and um, diagnostic testing and the lack of thereof and um, menopause, sort of it all came together really around, you know, how can we help? in that space so um our test really is around looking at the vaginal microbiome i mean most people will probably be aware that hormone testing is um quite a poor measure of whether or not you're per your perimenopausal um you know the mhra and um i guess um nice guidelines you know don't recommend that kind of testing it's it's really challenging to measure um hormones from well it's not challenging to measure hormones from blood but it's quite challenging to get a diagnostic of the hormone measurement in blood um and so that's you know because it's fluctuating um yeah. all the time and so that that's that becomes a real challenge so we sort of looked at you know will the vaginal microbiome be more stable environment will it give us give us a better um diagnostic if we can get down that route will it just help us monitor where people are on that journey um so for the last 18 months we've been researching in that space um and what we do is we take a urine sample um, and we measure the bacteria in that, in, that, in that urine sample. And we can map that out by looking at the, the whole of the vaginal microbiome. So all the, micro, all the bacteria that are present in the, in the biome. I think it's, it's, it's important to say that, you know, like the, the gut microbiome is very much diverse. It's all about the big number of bacteria that are present. The vaginal microbiome is completely different. So it's all about... Um, the dominance of one type of bacteria, and that bacteria is lactobacilli. Um, however, there are different species of lactobacilli, and lactobacilli is is dominant because of the amount of estrogen. As Helen said, through that phase of premenopause, estrogen's abundant. It keeps the vagina in a very low pH, and the only bacteria that can really survive, the good guys, are the lactobacilli. So you have a very healthy envir uh, vaginal environment. As estrogen starts to reduce, which it will do as we enter into perimenopause and then into postmenopause where it ceases altogether, 
what happens is the pH changes slightly and different types of lactobacilli bacteria can then start to proliferate in that in that vaginal environment. And really that's what we're we're monitoring. We're monitoring the change from you know a high level of lactobacilli crispatus, which is the really good guys, to the other different species, which is um, Inas, Gentanae, and Gasserae. And as we can sort of measure those ratios and how they change, that's really what's giving us guidance on whether or not people are entering the perimenopause or not. And, and it's very much a research phase, but, um, you know, we're getting seeing some really positive data. Brilliant. That's really exciting. Because that's really where we have the complexity with diagnostics, don't we, in our clinical space. So over the age of 45, the NICE guidelines suggest that we don't do any hormonal testing and, you know, prior to 45 that we can do bloods. But even with normal FSH levels, so follicle-stimulating hormones, so that's showing that the brain's trying to stimulate those ovaries to, you know, um, you know, release eggs and, and create that 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 cycle. Um, you know, a lot of women in their perimenopausal phase have completely normal blood tests, but can be quite symptomatic. And there are a lot of women that at that stage get dismissed, you know, mm -hmm. clinically. And I think that's where there is a lot of frustration from individual women because they know something's happening. It is something's changing. And in the menopause sort of specialist um, area, you know, people are proactively treating that with good results for women. Um, but this would help, I think, potentially. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I, th I think absolutely is. Um, I think because the estrogen reduction is happening, but you, and we also know it's fluctuating. It's kind of like a spiky little downward trend, if that makes sense. Um, and so because it's a downward trend, the, the, the bacteria sort of, you know, they're more, far more stable. They will grow in a slightly different environment. So we can start to measure the differences between, you know, as we switch from lactobacilli crispatus to lactobacilli inus, you know, it's like, OK, there's a change that's happening. And obviously there is this kind of prescribed route through research that's already been done, you know, we've sort of reviewed all of that and really we're just taking that and just applying it now to a more specific environment, which is the menopause uh, environment. So, But back to what we were describing about all those different things that can be happening in a woman's life. Clinically, I kind of think this could be so useful for us working in a busy clinic or just to add to the um, clinical, you know, sort of conversation, you know, the, the gathering of the history and patients tracking and, and then putting it all together to help really guide mm -hmm. us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, 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 the hope for us, I guess, you know, mm. is obviously that it helps clinicians, um, not, not as a diagnostic, but as sort mm. of an A, you know what I mean? It's another little step. It's another bit of information that might just help them get to it, get to that, that, that point, I guess, a little bit earlier, or even feel a bit more confident that actually what their, what their thought process is, is actually, oh, okay, probably is menopause. And there's a confirmation that it, that mm. it potentially is, I think. But, um, you know, I think there's the, the whole, um, how, can you can you monitor it i guess to a certain extent so you know is is the treatment pathway that i'm and again i don't want to put words into clinicians mouth but you know my thought process is you know is the treatment pathway that we um that's been prescribed can i measure it to make sure that actually it, it, it is working as we expect mm. it to work so you know the vaginal microbiome is becoming more dominated by lactobacilli again i think that's key to it i think that'd be really exciting if the research shows something because that's one thing that we are reliant on um, and obviously it's important to treat symptoms and obviously if they're improving but because they can be so complex and diverse the symptoms themselves um, I think 
a lot of women see a bit of improvement, but mm -hmm. they do mention other symptoms and you think, are, are they related? You're on hormone replacement now. Mm -hmm. So potentially that could be quite exciting if it'd be interesting to see what the research yeah, shows on definitely. that. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so that would be taking out perhaps some of the, I don't want to say guesswork, but your, your kind of gut feel for, for perhaps a, a diagnosis at the moment. Yeah. It would give that, that confidence and perhaps from, from a, a woman's perspective, that confidence sooner as to what they're going through. Because I think, you know, from, from what we hear that many women will perhaps visit their GP on multiple mm. occasions before uh, and almost trying to rule out other things before thinking of menopause or ruling that in. So, so perhaps that might, you know, that might obviously be beneficial for you as a, a GP who's got a waiting room full of, Absolutely. of, of patients, yeah, I but mean, also from, from that woman's perspective. Absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, the recent A you know, the APPG, the, um, you know, um, what was it? The, the work all parliamentary. That's right. Sorry. Um, using a, yeah, an the all party parliamentary group that, you know, that they looked at menopause for a good year and they've recently published their That's guidance. It. I mean, I think they actually described it. Nine percent of women presented to their GP over 10 times before getting a diagnosis. So, yeah. you know, even that, you know, would be able to save us a huge amount of time. And I think for I think back to Jan's point about actually um helping women understand that this might be part of the story. You know, obviously, you know, people are complex. It could be a variety of different things. But I think, I mean, I speak to a lot of women that they haven't even considered it. Yeah. So actually trying to create that understanding and that um, awareness that this might be part of it is really important because obviously, you know, I think we're going back a step, but to education, you know, I've spent 18 years, you know, absolutely loving female health and women's health. So I've kind of, you know, done a lot of extra training and I've just been fascinated by it but for a lot of us certainly in my you know medical school I wasn't taught about it about menopause so um, I know that's changing now and hopefully there's going to be a big shift but there's a lot of us out there as clinicians that just I suspect don't have it on our radar and as think, much as we should and know? I think that was the other really interesting thing that came out in that report that you know I think it was around 42 percent of medical schools actually don't cover this and I think you know, often we hear in the media, people are really quick to bash GPs for for perhaps not supporting women, but actually who are supporting the GPs to, to ensure that they've got that level of education and training as to, you know, what they should be looking for. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of education now, and I think there's a lot of people that have signed up and are engaging with it, and there's some huge, um, you know, support out there now. But actually, like you say, there's this, this shift is happening, but it's going to be slow, isn't it? So I think anything that can help us in that space would be really useful. And obviously you know, um, it's going to happen to 100% of women. Yeah. <laughs> so it's massive. And, and um 51% of the population. Yeah, absolutely. So. And uh, I mean, I think, and, you know, beyond healthcare, just thinking about the impact into workplaces. So, you know, within Flourish, we do quite a lot of work supporting workplaces. And that, again, has been the opportunity to educate, raise awareness and actually talk around both the hormonal aspects of menopause, but also the lifestyle aspects. And, you know, one in 10 women, will potentially leave their job or, you know, look at a change in role due to, you know, during the menopause. And as they, they, they say, it was due to those reasons that they left. That's huge. And I think that's kind of, you know, sort of perceived as, you know, the job that I've done for the last sort of 15, 20 years, I can no longer cope with mm. and start to assume that the job has got more pressures on it, that, you know, that has, it, it's become more challenging, the environment's become more challenged when, when really, like you say, it could just well be the, you know, the individual going through the mm. menopause and with the right treatment pathways, with the right, I guess, with the, you know, with more understanding in the workplace, 
you know, those those women will stay in those jobs for longer. And, you know, that will potentially impact, you know, on the um, economic, situation. Yeah, on the economic oh, situation. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. You know, it's massive, really, when you think about it's it. It's huge, huge. And I think, again, it's down to that awareness, that understanding that, you know, making it acceptable to um, talk about it. And mm. I'm hopeful that all these conversations just help towards that, really, because we haven't been talking about it, have we, as women individually or with our patients as much as we no, should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I think we all, <laughs> I think we all are mums that kind of, oh, you just get through it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I spend so many times with patients that actually feel it's a failure to think of, consider hormone replacement or, I mean, you know, obviously it's probably beyond the scope of today's podcast, but talking about actually sort of the concerns that people have had around hormone replacement, you know, over the years. So obviously mm-hmm. a lot of the anxiety and the worry about hormone replacement came from the likely sort of misinterpretation around data, you know, mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. uh, Women's Health Initiative, wasn't it, in yeah. 2002? Was and like over um, 20 years ago, wasn't it? Was it was over 20 yeah. years ago, and I think... <laughs> yeah, you know, it's still of, a legacy. Absolutely. It is an overnight, yeah. I think. Women put their hormone replacement in the bin and, yeah. and clinicians stop prescribing, and I think we're sort of still unpicking all that, and obviously we're using, you know... Um, body identical hormone replacement um you know through nice guidance under the um you know sort of support and guidance through places mm-hmm. like the british mm-hmm. menopause society and we are prescribing in a really safe way and actually the risks are really quite low obviously not everyone can take hormone replacement i think it's important to talk about that group as well and i think actually around that i think this is where your potential research could be helpful isn't it because obviously mm-hmm. one of you know obviously as a in a GP with an interest in menopause you use a lot of hormone replacement as well but we also obviously with the interest around lifestyle medicine using um, you know we're both great believers in that aren't we improving aspects of sleep uh, exercise activity you know um, nutrition can mm-hmm. be hugely beneficial for people so do you think we'll be able to see that sort of improvement from the lifestyle perspectives with your vagi, but you know, your vaginal. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, there's there's a little bit of research in that space, but but not a huge amount at the moment. And, you know, the, again, we're very much about, you know, filling in that uh, gender research gap and making sure that, you know, we do we do focus in on this space. But, um, you know, if you take the, the vaginal microbiome, there are two key things that really influence it. Oestrogen and hormones are obviously one. And we don't have the control because the oestrogen is going to be reduced. Now you can replace that with uh, HRT, like you say, but the other one is the immunity and then the inflammatory markers that that comes with it. And that can be monitored and improved by, like you talk about, you know, the sort of lifestyle medicine, which is, you know, good sleep, um, a good diet, you know, a good exercise regime. All of those things will help maintain your inflammatory markers down which will also influence on maintaining a good vaginal microbiome particularly as you get older so you know if we talk about the the postmenopausal women um typically they have a very dysbiotic um vaginal microbiome which means it's <clears throat> there's a lot of different bacteria there it's no longer dominated by that lactobacilli um, and, and as a consequence, it make, makes you more at risk of UTIs because the bacteria, the lactobacilli is a very protective bacteria. It's sort of, it has very hostile environments and doesn't let any of the bad guys in, basically. Um, but as your vaginal, as you reduce the estrogen levels and the, the lactobacilli starts to diminish, then, you know, the, the, the bacteria, uh, different bacteria can proliferate. And in some cases, it could be UTIs. Um, so we do know it's particularly as women age they become more prone to UTIs and that's one of the key reasons so you know there is a discussion a debate you know and I'd love to know your opinion on it is you know is there is there value I guess in people maintaining that hormonal um, 
replacement therapy sort of into older age, into, you know, post-menopause. Um, but also, I mean, you know, the key is also a maintaining that good lifestyle isn't it we know as you maintain that good lifestyle if you can maintain a good vaginal microbiome it massively helps I think yeah I think there's a few things to pick up on there isn't there because I think obviously lifestyle medicine and improving lifestyle is good for all stages mm -hmm. of a woman's True. life isn't it and that helps but actually that postmenopausal time is really key and um, I can't tell you how many women who struggle with recurrent water infections and you suddenly at some point pick up and you think actually you know and it can be transformational to treat it with um, topical estrogen and, and, you know, and then suddenly the recurrent UTIs start settling down and it's, it's massive. But to be able to monitor that would be potentially mm -hmm. really helpful. I think also to give people confidence, you know, with regards to and to see how, how much improvements being made would be useful. I think the challenge we've got is um, around that is, is to help women understand what's happening because I think obviously like you mentioned about maintain continuing hormone replacement throughout so I think your needs for estrogen actually change don't they so you know during the perimenopausal stage of life you can be having quite these big fluctuations of hormones and actually some women need quite high doses of estrogen to actually settle symptoms and help um, but as they go through to the postmenopausal time and your estrogen levels are naturally dropping sometimes those more systemic really um sort of more hot flushes and the kind of more significant even psychological physical symptoms do settle slightly that can you know on average about three to five years afterwards but obviously every woman's different but the postmenopausal fact is your estrogen levels are low and the sort of symptoms that can affect your vaginal uh, your vaginal area vulval area bladder area they become more prominent so you know a lot of women I've got a lot of women who actually reduce down their need for if you like systemic or you know HRT through their patch gel or spray and then they actually just use topical treatment and some women who because of their symptoms and choice they continue on hormone replacement long term so mm -hmm. I think to potentially consider ways of being able to individualize that for women through both lifestyle and maybe through hormone mm -hmm. replacement would be really helpful definitely brilliant so Jan I'm a bit simple um one of the things I'm sat here thinking is how do you analyze internally my microbiome from a urine sample do you not need some sort of swab or something to to take some cells from you know internally yes <laughs> i get i think i get what you're talking about now. <laughs> so um so because we're taking it from the urine so we're measuring the bacteria so we're not really looking at the human aspect of this to be honest we're just interested in the in the bacteria that are existing there so we don't need to scrape any human cells um mm -hmm. to uh to test the to test the bacteria because the, the bacteria um you know they're kind of they're kind of just they're existing in there you can, you can collect them using a swab yep. um undoubtedly i think um we felt during our development that uh, urine is easier, it's more inclusive. So it's because we send the sample off, um, we've got a little device that you use to pee into and we can collect the, uh, the exact amount that we want and it's always from the first pass of the urine um, or the first catch of that urine. Uh, and, and that's critical for us because, um, to your point, Beth, uh, we do need the bacteria to be flushed out. So the longer... Sounds a bit weird, but the longer it's kind of been sitting there, mm -hmm. <laughs> the more that's going to be flushed out because the bacteria kind of like to flourish and live in that environment. So as you urinate, you you will flush out right. it from that space and then from the vaginal uh, from the vaginal space as well, and we capture that. Um, and then what we can do is we can uh, 
Uh, we, we basically bash all the cells up. We take just the bacterial cells and we can we use a technique called next generation sequencing. Um, and from that, that's how we can differentiate between these different types of bacteria. But not only can we differentiate between these different types of bacteria, we can also measure their relative abundance. So how much is there? Um, so we, we know that if you've got, you know, 75% lactobacillus crispatus, bingo, that's really good. Um, but also, with if you've got 75% lactobacillus crispatus, you might have 10 or 20% of what we would call pathogens, bad bacteria, which if you used a different technique, perhaps you would identify those and maybe even treat them because they will amplify, you will be able to detect them. But using our technique, we now know that there's only 10% there or 15%. So we know the good guys are completely keeping them under control there. You know, they're in their box. They're not doing anything. So, um, so, so we can use the urine sample. The benefit is to be debated whether it's a benefit, but one of the key benefits of, 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 a, of a urine, urine sample is de facto you will measure UTIs, so urinary tract infections, mm -hmm. um, uh, to the species level. So again, it will potentially um, give you a better understanding of what the UTI is. If it's a, a recurrent one, does is the same bacteria coming back time and time and time again? In which case, is there a be better antibiotic? You know, it will estrogen again, because we know estrogen just, you know, really helps the good guys um, proliferate, you know, is, is that sufficient? So I think, um, yeah, so we, we, we're comfortable with urine. Um, we're going down the research route. I think there's, there are research publications between urine and swab. Um, but there, you know, I do, I do appreciate this. I think there may be a slight complexity <laughs> in trying to understand, but uh, as we definitely, we can measure the vaginal microbiome and that is representative um, of the, I guess, yeah, of the vagina. vagina. Thank you. And I guess from, from a, a woman's perspective, it's much easier to, to get a urine sample than perhaps swabbing themselves and I guess less room for error from I think so yeah you know I mean we all know you know the classic example and now we can reference COVID for everything which I think is great you know but we now know you know you, you know if yourself you know when you took the the, the the COVID you know some people completely you know down the back of the tonsils mm. and tickle the tonsils and it was very unpleasant or you know up to the eyeballs when they were doing nasal pharyngeal and some people just, you know, sort of just almost got as far down, you know, as far as they could. And, and, you know, some people found it very difficult to do yeah. that test as well. So undoubtedly you were getting differences in, um, in some of those tests that we get. So I think it's going to be the same with the vaginal swab. You know, they, they can say how far you insert it. Everybody's different, you know, two centimeters, four centimeters, six centimeters. I'd, yeah. <laughs> well, also, yeah. it could be quite an uncomfortable place at this time of life as well, yeah. couldn't it? So, I've got a lot of ladies who struggle with vaginal dryness or soreness. And if we're talking in the postmenopausal space, that can, I exactly. don't think that would be very tolerated. Yeah. Thinking yeah. about examining women at that time, they find it really uncomfortable. So, definitely. Yeah. 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 So, I think we felt that urine was a more inclusive, and uh, the data that we've got to date, you know, shows it's absolutely comparable to, to a swab. So, and potentially that. something you don't need to be in the actual clinical room for. Yeah. So it could be something that's done, I guess, you know, prior to the consultation or following a consultation that's done at the woman's time rather than self swabs or absolutely like yeah you know i mean the testing the, the sample collection and again you know covid's been great for this because it's made people people more comfortable with actually popping a tube in a post and sending it off and doing a swab mm. at home and you know so collecting a urine sample following the same process i think hopefully it's made it a lot easier for people so um, that's how it works you you send send somebody a kit 
they do a sample and send it back to you exactly that yeah so um uh, we have a have a kit um uh, and in that kit there's a little um urine collection device uh, designed specifically to collect collect urine it's I don't know if anybody's been, but it's a little bit like a shiwi. Um, so a little bit like a funnel, as I say, it collects just its first 10 mils and then discards everything else down the loo. Um, you literally take that tube off, pop a, pop a cap on, pop it in the post, send it to us, and then we do the, um, we do the testing. Um, and um, then we've got a report um, that, that sort of our GPs review and it goes back to, um, back to the individual. So it sounds really exciting. And I think with lots of research that we hear about, we're kind of like, oh, so when's it going to be here? How how soon can I use it? And and Helen, from your perspective as a, a GP, there's probably a little bit of you that's like, this sounds amazing and, and potentially game changing. But, you know, we have to have a dose of realism and, you know, it's can you days. see it working? And, and I'd like to, I think there's, there's still lots of questions, aren't there? And I think everything with, um, you know, new science, new research, I think it needs to be rigorously tested. We need to be... Um, asking lots of questions, asking what actually may or may not be, you know, a, you know, you can, you can conclude from the research that we find. So I think, you know, it feels like early days, but exciting um, from a NHS perspective, you know, obviously, you know, resources are, you know, limited. So I think it needs to really, you know, have value. It needs to be adopted, you know, it needs to be, you know, again, tested, improved. And I think, we're at that stage of th the beginning of that journey, really, aren't you? I, I think that's exactly where we are. So, yeah, we've um, we started a pilot study. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking to recruit um, a thousand women. Uh, it, it's a very simple inclusive. It's uh, age 38 and over and um, assigned female at birth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really to give us a good set of data for pre, peri and postmenopausal uh, women to have a look at how their vaginal microbiomes um, you know, how, how different they are, I guess, within those populations. Um, we've got a bioinformatics uh, group working on the data. So again, I think, you know, we're going to really drill down on what this data looks like and really try to bring in some um, un good understanding in this space. So we, we really want to get some good publications um, into the, you know, into the public domain on this to really sort of support, I think, the clinicians who probably dare I say, are the most sceptical without a doubt and the most, our most challenging group. <laughs> yeah. um, but also I think it's important that, you know, we look to get a, um, a, a product to market that can start to help people understand where they are. So it may not be a diagnostic test in the first instance, but I think, you know, it will hopefully guide people on that journey. Um, and whilst we gather more data really to, to sort of really support the evidence based around um, making it into a diagnostic test. So a couple of final questions before we, we wrap up. So if I've listened to this podcast and I'm thinking I'm 30, I'm over 38 years of age and I'm, you know, female at birth, where do I sign up to help the research? So at the moment we are in our pilot phase. So we are accepting up to a thousand women uh, into the pilot phase. That test is free of charge because uh, it's our research. Um, you would sign up on our website, which is um, menaguide.co.uk. 
uh, and you can sign up there for our pilot trial, uh, pilot trial that will come through to us. Um, and we will, um, yeah, we'll send the sample out to you and, and then just follow the instructions and Brilliant. return it, basically. Fantastic. I guess it's important to say at this moment in time then, yeah. it's research, so it's not a diagnostic test. Okay. Um, but you will get the report, you will get information back and, you know, you'll get some, you'll get some signposting as well as to, to how to go to the next stage if that's what you want. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. And Helen, I'm interested to know a little bit more about your work at Flourish. So talked about lifestyle medicine and, um, and kind of the various sort of impacts that that can have. So, so how could Flourish help me sort of, I guess, be better at some of the things that we've talked about in terms of perhaps, you know, sleep and nutrition or, or I just want to come and see you because I've, I've listened to you today and I think you'll, you know, you, you might understand me or you might get me and you might understand kind of what I'm going through. What, how, how does it work? I mean, lifestyle medicine, it's probably worth just covering that really. So lifestyle medicine itself is looking at the pillars of lifestyle. So that's physical activity, sleep, nutrition, connection, relaxation and um, stress management and looking at reducing harmful substances like alcohol, smoking, drugs, you know. And the idea is you look at every individual, you know, as a whole. And we know that all of us have all those different aspects of our lives where we're juggling and look at how can we look at those pillars and optimise for you what's relevant. So say if you had difficulty sleeping, we'd look at the science of sleep, the evidence around sleep, um, you know, interventions and support and advice and things that we could change. So we do a lot of work around behavioral change and support, understanding that where you're at is where you're at and, and how can we help you move to where you want to be. Yeah. So we use, um, within Flourish itself, we've developed a team. So we've got a trusted team who are all um, trained, you know, at high levels in their field. So we've got, you know, sleep specialists, uh, nutrition you know, experts and um, we use a lot of work through coaching, health coaching and it allows individuals to actually be able to achieve the goals or achieve the lifestyle prescription if you like and yeah. alongside that say if you have got your any hormonal challenges or you, you're looking at possibly optimising your uh, or considering hormone replacement that's something that we you know as I say it's important to consider altogether really so um, from my perspective I see individual women um, and it's a you know it's a very different environment to the NHS but it's a lovely you know I've got time which is amazing and I've got like 45 minutes where I can talk through we have quite a thorough pre-assessment form where people fill in you know a significant amount of details around their lifestyle aspects and their history of their hormonal health and then we gather it all together in a conversation and then we um, create really together a shared management plan around hormonal um, interventions if required or a conversation around that menopause journey if needed or, or, or whatever the situation really because obviously lifestyle medicine can apply to all aspects of life but um, and then we go through the different pillars and actually make that specific to you so we make it achievable you know one change and and yeah no it's been um, that that's that's pretty much what we're doing around the flourish thing or into workplaces as well we can talk to big workplaces around the concepts of lifestyle medicine too. yeah and there's lots of companies looking out there at the moment in terms of how can we better support our employees and you know a happy healthy workforce is a productive workforce um but i think everybody's appreciating that that everybody needs support and and actually you know the power of the collective as well so really really fascinating so thank you both for, for joining us today i think you know, we've touched on many things and I think there's certainly more that we could talk about perhaps in the future. Um, you know, we've we've already sort of just skimmed the surface, I think, of this menopause discussion. Um, and I'd really like to keep keep this going. So um, 
hopefully we can we can do some more of it in the future so thanks both for for your time today yeah thank thanks you very much thanks, thanks. guys